You're listening to Chris Farrell's On Watch podcast from Judicial Watch. I'm Chris Farrell, and this is On Watch. Welcome to On Watch, everybody, the Judicial Watch podcast, where we go behind the headlines for a little deeper dive on things the media really doesn't want you to know about. We try to recover some lost history and try to explain the inexplicable. Today, a great treat for you. We have on the show Jason Rance, who during the weekday kills it on the radio, KTTH in Seattle, dominates Western Washington State uh, with his presence and his sharp wit and insight into things. Uh, but before we get to Jason, and we're going to talk about his new book, but before we get to that, I want to thank you for taking time out to join us on this podcast, whether you're watching on YouTube or Rumble, or whether you're listening to the audio version on Spotify or any of the other platforms that are out there. We appreciate your time. We want to hear from you. We want to get a, a, a message from you, whether you post to it or whether you send us an email. We, uh, we appreciate your time and your effort, and we try to keep this podcast topical, newsy, and fun. So uh, without further ado, Jason Rance is the author of the forthcoming book, What's Killing America? Welcome, Jason. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you. So uh, you're sitting there in Seattle, which is essentially the the hub, uh, you know, of the liberal left, and uh, you're obviously a man surrounded. Uh, tell me about your entry into uh, the conservative space when it comes to your show and what you're doing, and then what led you to write your book. Yeah, I mean, here in Seattle, obviously, because it's so far to the left, media outlets just don't cover certain perspectives, and I saw. Sure a clear opening for the reporting and commentary that I provide. Obviously, I come from a, a conservative perspective, although I don't always view stories through any sort of political lens. I think a lot of the issues that I cover on a regular basis, at least on the local level, whether we're talking about crime or homelessness, drug use, I don't view those as inherently political. They, they become politicized because you've got politicians who are creating policy through an ideological lens. But for the most part, I think everyone is on the same page where they want less of all of those things. And so the question then becomes, well, how do we get to that point? Now, the reason why I ended up writing the book, What's Killing America, is because I noticed that in big cities run by Democrats, we're seeing the exact same problems happen. And then, of course, you look at the policies behind it, and they're pretty much the same policies. And it should come as no shock that when you tell criminals, hey, we are not going to charge you. We're not even going to arrest you. Well, guess right. what? They take advantage of that. When you tell a drug addict that they're not going to go to jail and suffer any consequences, legally speaking, from their drug addiction. Well, guess what happens? Drug dealers hear that. They flood your streets with product. And then the addicts use. When you tell homeless people, we're not going to hassle you. We're not going to move you around. Well, they set up encampments wherever it is they want to set up. And all the while that this is happening, You've got politicians from Seattle and Portland, L.A. to New York, Chicago, Atlanta, D.C., constantly creating a higher cost of living. So our quality of life is on the decline in these cities, and yet the cost associated with living here continues to go up. And it's yeah, all you, tied it, directly to policy. As, as you've pointed out, you know, crimes against persons and property, you're not going to find anybody signing up and saying, yeah, that's great. That's that's my political platform. I want to see more murders and more robberies. No one's going to say that. But as you just pointed out, there's this schizophrenia. There's this this mindset of, well, we're going to introduce policies 
and we're going to constrain the police or we're going to do, we're going to have certain uh, approaches to how we manage and run our cities that generate the conditions in the environment for really outrageous criminal conduct. And, uh, you know, the big question for me, which I, I have yet to be able to answer it, and I've been doing this a long time, when you've got a city like Baltimore, which has been a, a single-party, Democrat-run operation for something like 80 years, 8-0, uh, how is it that voters go back and back and keep reelecting the same people? Uh, so I think there, that's actually a complex question because I, I think the answer to that is not clear. It depends on where we're talking about. I think generally what I've seen is that local media just does a really bad job of connecting dots. So you'll get transactional stories about what happens every day, whether we're talking about Baltimore or anywhere else. Uh, right. A murder happened here, here's the suspect, and here's where we are in the investigation. Maybe you get a follow-up, usually you don't, but that's pretty much it. They never tell the public, well, the reason why we're seeing this trend in homicides is because uh, city council made this decision or state lawmakers made that decision. They never point to any of the reasons behind it. And the fact of the matter is most people don't spend that much time in the news. They're not doing research on their own because they're busy. We, we all have lives. Like you and I, we get paid to study all of this and read up and listen and watch. But most people don't have that kind of time. They're taking care of their families. And it gets really easy for folks to not understand who's responsible or what's responsible. And then they just continue to make the same decisions in the voting booth that they've made in the past because they've been taught. And in particular, Baltimore, you have a large black population that has been taught over and over and over again. Only Democrats care about you. The media then, nationally certainly, will reinforce that nonsensical point and people just fall for it. I, I think we're clearly starting to see a shift in that belief, not just along racial lines, but just along lines of, you know, you have San Francisco is a perfect example of this. You have progressives who decided enough is enough. They ended up recalling their out of control DA, uh, George Soros right. wannabe, Chesa Boudin. They made significant changes in the school board there. So they're starting to see, you know, what's going on and they're connecting the dots because they personally have experienced it. But then whenever I get any sense of hope, I then look at Chicago, which went in the opposite <laughs> direction. Everyone thought, oh, this will be right. the time we're actually going to get someone sane. And then they right. go with Brandon Johnson. I can tell you, I have my own experience in your lovely city of Seattle back in the late 2000s, probably like 2008 or so. Uh, a, a group of Japanese American citizens in your fair city contacted us because they were very concerned about a day laborer center that was going to be kind of plunked down in the middle of their community. And the spot that they had picked was right next to, or actually right between a senior center and a childcare facility. And they decided that the building in the middle was the great place to put a day laborer center. And the Japanese American community said, hey, look, you know, uh, we understand the need for this, but it's probably not a good spot because, you know, you're gonna have about 200 guys hanging out, waiting for jobs in an area with two sort of vulnerable communities mm -hmm. or groups right next to it. And uh, we did a little public education in Seattle. And this is in the days when the Seattle Post-Intelligencer was still in business. And so we did this public education. We tried to inform the public about things like, hey, look, when you bring in people uh, who are being paid less than the fair wage, they're, they're illegal immigrants, unlawfully employed, 
you're creating conditions that are actually going to exacerbate the problem. Mm -hmm. The only way you can believe in this or support this is if you believe that the poor are not being paid, that they should be paid even less. And there's yeah. consequences with crime and all kinds of bleed over effects. So we did some public education, gave some, some conferences, some talks. There were groups of people in those crowds who were giving me the hairy eyeball, right? They were staring me down as the evil person. <laughs> I said, look, you know, this is just basic economics. You get more of what you subsidize. Yeah. And so in order to control labor costs, you pay people, people less money. You're, you're creating tax cheats from the businesses in Seattle. This went on and on. We did a few of these public education uh, events and the po Seattle Post Intelligencer wrote a column, or one of their columnists did, and the headline was, Scary Man Not From Here, in reference to yours truly. Because I was this guy from D.C. talking to people about what the consequences are, the unintended consequences yeah. of, of having day labor centers and people that are unlawfully present being clustered together in, in residential areas. So, you know, a lot of this is public education, but even then, even then you have a huge hurdle to overcome. And that's why I'm looking forward to seeing and reading your book, um, What's Killing America, because you're trying to educate the public about what the consequences are for these reckless policies. Yeah, and, and again, you know, obviously the title uh, or the subtitle, uh, Blaming the Radical Left, might push some liberals away from reading the book. And so I've been telling conservatives, <laughs> buy one copy yeah. for yourself, buy one for a liberal friend and watch their head explode. But at the end of the day, it's even on conservatives who don't realize what's truly happening or the why. I think that's the most important part. And it's not even necessarily the why of uh, policy leads to these unintended consequences, which obviously I get into in my book, including on illegal immigration and the economy. But it's sure. why folks on the <laughs> radical left believe what they believe. What is behind this viewpoint of theirs? Because you and I look at some of their views and we can tell you immediately why it's not going to work, why it's crazy, why it's ideologically insane. And yet they don't seem to pick up on the same issues. They don't look at the data the way that we do. And if right. we truly want to defeat these really horrible and destructive policies, I do think it's important to understand the why. And so I take some time on all of these different subjects to get inside of the brain. There's lots of room for me to explore uh, of the radical <laughs> left to, to really get to know why they hold the positions that they hold. You know, and it, it's even it isn't necessarily always the radical left. There's two other groups, yeah. even on the right, frankly, that will go along to get along on some of these policies. And, and one segment are the people that are afraid to be called mean, right? Because that's the worst thing in the world. It's, you're mean, you're a hater. And they instantly yeah. collapse. They, they abandon their principles because they're terrified of being called names. And then the second group is what I refer to as sort of the, you know, the Chamber of Commerce Country Club Republicans who are all about, they, they want, you know, business policies or they want an approach to things that may be beneficial to them in the short term, but they're not looking at the longer, broader consequences of how, in fact, what they're doing is going to destroy their tax base. Those sorts of folks uh, who are a little short-sighted, in my opinion. Yeah, and, and look, at the end of the day, Democrats and Republicans have some folks who just don't think all of these policies through. Your first point, I think, is incredibly important. The left is very good at redefining words 
because when you have control of language, you have control over arguments. And when you're the one who decides how an argument is won based solely on language, well, guess right. what? It's really easy to convince people to either take your side or to shut up. They're also really good at the labels. We've seen, especially over the course of the last several years, anyone who would speak up, including Democrats who said, well, maybe defunding police is not a good idea. They were immediately attacked. Well, it turns out right. you hate black people because blacks are disproportionately impacted by the racist criminal justice system. And folks who are well-intentioned on the left will then start to shut down because no one wants to be called a racist, particularly when they're a Democrat in a Democrat-run city. They, and I totally get that. We're starting to see that shift a lot because when you call everyone a white supremacist, it turns out that that term doesn't mean anything anymore. Right. I think they've overplayed their hand, but it's still been effective in certain areas. And, I, you know, the other term that always makes me nuts is anytime they tack on phobe or phobia, mm -hmm. whether it's homophobia, transphobia, it's often attached to, to a gender identity issue. But so when that's done, what you're saying is someone has an irrational fear. So that's the starting point. <laughs> you're, you're, you're accusing somebody at the onset of you have an irrational fear concerning X, meaning you have some sort of a mental disorder. And that's how they want to start their dialogue. And it's a phony ploy. Yeah. But th that's, that's their approach is, okay, you're phobic. You have a problem. You're emotionally disturbed. Now, let's discuss things. How can we change your mind? That's yeah, it's always framed dishonest. in that way. Right. It's a very uh, dishonest 100%. It, yeah. it is, and it's intended to stifle any kind of debate because it's very easy to win arguments when you're not arguing with anyone. And so if everyone <laughs> just assumes that your position is the right one because no one is willing to speak up, well, it makes it a heck of a lot easier to pass crazy policies. And again, I get into this in, in What's Killing America. We have on the right, and moderate Democrats have done this as well, ceded a lot of power to a small but very vocal group of radicals. And because we did that after George Floyd, those radicals were able to rewrite a lot of laws, a lot of policies. They were they, they told us what they wanted to do. They said, we want to dismantle right. systems of oppression. Well, they believe all systems in which they are not in charge and have not built are systems of oppression. And we've seen, particularly around the criminal justice system, what it means to dismantle. And that's impacting everyone. There used to be, on my local radio show in Seattle, I used to get text messages from listeners who said, I am so glad I left Seattle, I moved to Issaquah, I moved to Centralia or Spokane, because they no longer have to deal with all the craziness. But I stopped right. getting those text messages years ago, because the bad, this is not Las Vegas, the bad policies of Democrat-run cities, they end up spreading. And sooner or later, they come into your neighborhood, and we can't just sit back and go somewhere else. We can't just sit back and allow it to happen. We have to get more engaged. Yeah, because eventually you run out of somewhere else, right? There, yeah, there, there exactly. Comes a point, <laughs> there comes a point where uh, you know, this, new, this new normal uh, really contaminates everything around it. Um, so your book comes out in September. What's the particular date? When can folks look for it? So it's out officially on September 26th. You can pre-order it now on Amazon, Walmart.com, Barnes & Noble. I, I recommend uh, pre-ordering the book so you can guarantee to actually get it on the day that it's delivered. But beyond that, you know this, any conservative author knows this, it's very difficult for conservatives to sell books because our content does not get picked up by mainstream media outlets. Right. Our 
our concepts don't get any sort of reasonable debate. They're just completely dismissed by a lot of the media outlets. And so the only way that we get success, including getting on a bestseller list, is we pre-sell a heck of a lot of books. So I'm hoping people will go ahead and, and pre-order the book. Uh, wherever it is you want to purchase it, it helps. I encourage everyone to do so. So the, the title, of course, what Kill, What's Killing America, um, you know, that's a, an important sort of diagnosis on your part. Uh, a little later on into the book, do you get to some, some solutions, some, some, co- some courses of action, some way to go yep. forward? Every single chapter, after I give you exactly what I think is wrong, I give you examples of what's working. And so great examples are the, the chapters on homelessness, where we know what can work. We know that a carrot and stick approach actually works. And so I give you the data from large cities and small cities on how they've been able to address the homelessness crisis and seen some really significant results. I also tell you what doesn't work so that we can say, let's not try this idea. It's already been tried and it's already failed multiple times. There's the housing first model that pretty much every Democrat run city has adopted and they based it on the so-called successes in Salt Lake City. And as I was doing research, I was like, boy, did they just make it up. There was no success story out of Salt Lake City, certainly not to the extent that they had promised. So I dedicate an entire chapter just to the Salt Lake City experiment experiment on housing first, because this is one of those concepts that just has failed spectacularly. And we know exactly why. And so I tell you the why, and I tell you what you can do to make it better. That is great. It's very important because it's easy, as you well know, uh, to sort of look at the situation and critique it, do some analysis, point out the flaws and errors, try to hold people accountable. But then there's a kind of a second half of that that really is our responsibility, and that is we have to come up with solutions. Yep. We can't just throw rocks and, and you know, make fun of people, <laughs> however easy and, and fun that is. It can uh, be fun, let's be honest. Yeah, it, it can be, um, particularly when you're watching really first-class kind of stupidity. But uh, it's very important for us to be able to come back and say, well, here's the solution. And uh, even if it's imperfect, you know, we don't have to let uh, good be the enemy of perfect, right? We can, we can make improvements yeah. and we can change the environment or situation and I think once things sort of get set in motion in the right direction, there's, a, there's an inertia where you, you kind of keep going in the right direction. And that's a very important thing. We can't, like I said, we can't take something that's good and say, well, it's not perfect, therefore don't do it. Yeah. You know, that's, that's not a good argument. Yeah, good luck finding something that's perfect in the world of politics. You're just not going to find that. Uh, and look, at the end of the day, I think it's important for all of us to have an open mind. And if a Democrat comes up with an idea that is, in fact, innovative and looks at uh, an approach to a problem in a different way on a local level, again, because I don't think most of these issues are seen as inherently political. I'm open to giving different ideas a try. And I'm certainly open to people who read this book and say, actually, I don't agree with you on this particular topic. Great. I want debate. Because right. I think that debate leads to a better solution, not a perfect solution, but certainly I think it can lead to a better solution. And the more that we engage, whether we're talking about conservatives or moderates or Democrats, when we engage with each other, we actually start to see better results. And there is a very specific reason why cities that are completely controlled by the left are not seeing those successes, certainly not what they've seen in the past, because they got no one in the background saying, whoa, 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 slow your roll there. I think you're looking at this through a slightly biased lens, maybe consider this. 
And once we start speaking up and putting pressure on lawmakers to actually be open to that, I think we'll start to see some significant results. Look, I, I don't want to leave Seattle. I don't want to see Seattle die. I think what we're seeing in San Francisco is the death of a world-class city that hasn't Amen. been world-class in a very long time. I don't know if that's going to be reversible. Chicago, D.C., Atlanta, they're all going through very similar struggles. And yeah. we have a chance to save these cities. We just have to be willing to step up and do the work. I want to get your opinion on uh, something that's sort of come out of the left that's a, a little new, a little different. He's getting a lot of attention, and that is RFK Jr. Uh, he's not sort of uh, parroting all the, the woke, you know, neo-Marxist Bolshevik lines. I mean, he's, he's clearly a Democrat, and he's a guy coming at yeah. things from the left, but he, there's a certain element of a, there's a little bit of a refreshing uh, breeze maybe kind of blowing along with him uh, where he's willing to sort of look at different options. It's not just the same old sort of formulaic response we've been getting, you know, mm -hmm. from Obama to now. Do you, what, what's your take on RFK Jr. and, and how he's approaching uh, the, the, you know, the problems in front of us? Yeah, look, I think from a strategy perspective, he's doing it the right. I, I personally find him to be a little kooky. But at the end of the day, he's running against someone who lots of folks have no faith in. And right. that is equally divided because of the policy failures, but also the fact that he's 112 years old. And I'm wondering <laughs> if in that context, someone like RFK does better than he otherwise would. I, I don't know. Because I do yeah. think that if Biden was younger or if it was Obama again, he's still that figure that the left treats as godlike. And I don't think that there would be even a slight opening for someone like RFK to come in. I think right. there's an opening for someone farther to the left than, than Biden. Uh, clearly, there is because of Bernie Sanders' success. I don't know if he's the one who can do that anymore. But I would be more worried about folks who are farther to the left, not the ones who maybe try to have at least the appearance of a more moderate approach yeah, to the Biden, Biden fakes it. Uh, yeah, he fakes it. There, there are Bolsheviks further to the left. Uh, I just thought that uh, the, the RFK thing is interesting because um, he's somebody that Biden is not capable of debating. Yeah. And well, imagine so, for a moment if the media gave more attention to RFK, left wing media. Because right. all of it on CNN or MSNBC and the New York Times, Washington Post, it's been critical or it's just completely ignored him. Right. And it's really been conservative media that has amplified and treated him seriously. And while we don't agree on pretty much anything, there's small things that maybe we agree on, but we've at least treated him with a sense of fairness. Uh, yeah. Part of it is maybe because we know the threat that he poses to uh, Joe Biden. But sure, sure. Let, let's I wonder what his numbers would be if more people on the left heard from him, because I do think that there are folks who are looking for an alternative to Joe Biden and they're just not getting that news. There was an AP poll that came out yesterday. We were doing a show with a White House correspondent from Washington Times and the, the numbers came out of AP saying 69% of Democrats yeah. think that Biden is unfit because of his, his age and his sort of mental state, that he's just out of it. That is an outrageously high number. And uh, it's no surprise, 89% of Republicans found that. But, uh, you know, we're, we're facing a, a real problem uh, in that, 
even in the last couple of months, Biden has been fading and fading fast. I mean, he is out of it. It was kind of awkward or embarrassing before. I think now it's it's verging on dangerous. You can't hide it in a world with social media and 24-7 cable news. You just can't. And the more media outlets try to pretend it's not an issue, I think the greater the spotlight is on this because no one believed. George Stephanopoulos with, with Nikki Haley a few days ago saying, wait, excuse me, why do you think he's not going to finish out his second term? Like, why would you ask that question? You know exactly what she's saying. It's what everyone is thinking. And so sure. when you pretend that it's not an issue, just other people, number one, aren't going to take you seriously. And number two, you're just highlighting the fact that you're trying to cover up for them. And it just right. puts a larger spotlight on, on what I think is clearly an issue, according to multiple polls. And if they don't address that on the left, and I hope they don't, uh, it'll be much easier for a conservative, be it Trump or anyone else, to actually win. Right. So... Uh We're getting a little further afield from your book than I originally intended, but I'm really interested in your perspectives. Uh, You've got somebody, so you've talked about how cities have failed. Obviously, there's some states that have failed. And to your south, of course, the illustrious example is California. And there's a lot of people who are whispering that should Biden bow out, uh, you know, Gavin Newsom is primed and teed up to step in. And here's a guy, you know, we're not talking about a, a failed city or a a city like Seattle that's in very dangerous trouble. He's destroyed an entire state. California is a wreck. Yeah. And so he's, he's taking your book. I mean, he's like the living, walking, talking poster child for all the problems in your book. What, what do you think about that? He is going to, if assuming that becomes reality and he runs, he will benefit from a left-wing media that will pretend there's nothing wrong in California. I mean, we've been seeing gaslighting from the media and Democrats for the last several years. And it's truly astonishing. And I think that's why we've seen such, such a slow response from the public in changing the direction of individual cities. I mean, when you look at California, LA is a mess. San Francisco is a mess. A lot of the cities in between and around LA and San Francisco are struggling. And the folks who live there, they know. Some of them have fled. California was one of the states that led the way in residents leaving and going to another state. A lot of the times they're going to Florida, Texas, Tennessee, and Arizona. New York State is another perfect example of this. So I think it's, it's harder to hide when you have a bad record, but it's certainly easier when you have a media on your side and they're going to cover up a lot of what's going on, which is why I say it's important for all of us to get more activated and actually spread the word. Use social media to get out the truth about what's happening and don't be you know afraid to talk to family members or neighbors or coworkers who won't report you to HR about these <laughs> issues to make sure that they're aware of what's really going on and I do talk about this issue in what's killing America as well I, I try to make it broader because look these cities are major parts of state economies and when they fail there are ripple effects that everyone feels that's for sure absolutely uh, Jason, besides, obviously, the topics that we have covered, give me one or two other big issues that you, that you cover or discuss in the chapters of your book, What's Killing America? Yeah, so it's broken down into two parts. One part is how policies impact our quality of life, so from crime and homelessness, drug use, 
but also the second part is the direct policies that tell us how to live our lives. And so I take a dive into transportation and housing policies. You have left wing council members and mayor's offices crafting, you know, housing zones or residential areas that end up increasing the cost of living while at the same time they try to get you out of your car. So you're essentially forced to move farther away from these big cities. The big cities oftentimes employ folks who make a lot of money, which means you're attracting wealthy people to live closer to work because they realize the traffic nightmare that the left has created. All the while, we're hearing from leftists that we got to do something about housing affordability. We're, there's so many people who are being gentrified <laughs> right. and they're being pushed out. It's like it's because your policies are doing this. So right. I cover that as well. And I also get into, you know, some of the more recent controversies around now how to cook. Like you're telling us not to use gas stoves. Why is that? You're telling us and really forcing us eventually to get into electric vehicles. And I get into why we're not ready for that. What's leading the, the what's the leading reason behind this push, and what impact has it had on just basic quality of life and the cost of living? Excellent. Very very good, uh, Jason. I think your book is timely and it's very important. I think it. Uh, Smart folks will read it and sort of use it as a guide walking up into this uh, election about a year or a little more than that, a year and a few months out. Uh, but it's a great way to frame up uh, sort of an analysis perspective on what we need to do to fix these problems in our country. Um, tell our listeners uh, again where they can find your book and where they can listen to you. Yeah, so the name of the book is What's Killing America Inside the Radical Left's Tragic Destruction of Our Cities. It's available for pre-order wherever it is you get your books. So you can head on over to Amazon, Walmart, Target if you dare, Barnes & Noble, uh, Books A Million, wherever it is you get your books, I, I encourage you to pre-order. And if you're so interested, you can follow me on social media or uh, listen to my radio show. It's weekday afternoons in Seattle on KTTH Radio, 770 AM from 3 to 7 PM. It's also available in podcast form. That's great. Jason Rance, the book is What's Killing America? You can listen to him on KTTH in Seattle. Jason, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'm Chris Farrell on Watch. Thanks for listening to Chris Farrell's On Watch podcast. For more information, visit www.judicialwatch.org because no one is above the law.